employers simply have to think very differently about skills. Instead of relying on very traditional signals of what indicates a skill in a person, is it really where they got their degree from, what type of degree they had, or which workplace they worked in 10 years ago, or is it actually what they're able to demonstrate in the workplace? Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, why the changing world of work demands a skills-first approach. There is so much change in technology, in business models and so on, that there is a need for enterprises, for individual workers and for economy and society as a whole to continuously think about how then do I acquire new skills, We hear from Singapore on how the government, business and individuals are working together to ensure lifelong learning. And we speak to the head of Girls Who Code, an organisation that helps girls around the world get the skills they need. Our students come from very different backgrounds. Some dropped out of college and some graduated from the Ivy League. But what matters to us most at Girls Who Code is that they all have equal access to opportunities to break into the tech industry. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit wef.ch slash podcasts where you'll also find our sister podcast, Meet the Leader, Agenda Dialogues and the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with this look at the notion of skills first. These are young people who are the embodiment of bravery and resilience, the very qualities that we know these companies are desperate to have reflected in their workforce. This is Radio Davos. Wondering what job you'll be doing in five years' time? Chances are it may be quite different from what you do now and you'll need different skills. The transition to clean energy and the rise of artificial intelligence are likely to have a big impact on the world of work, so employers too need to adopt a skills-first mindset. Welcome to the second and final day of the World Economic Forum's Growth Summit, and on this episode of Radio Davos, we look at the importance of learning new skills. The forum has just published a report in collaboration with PwC called Putting Skills First, Creating Access to opportunity for all. Later in this episode, we hear from a country that has put skills first and encouraged companies and individuals to upskill to meet the rapidly changing demands of the labour market. And we meet the head of an organisation helping girls and women gain the skills they need to join the high-tech sector. First though, World Economic Forum Managing Director Sadia Zahidi explains why we need a skills-first approach. So we find that when it comes to the skills churn, or rather what amount of the current core skills of a worker today, what percentage of that is likely to change in the next four years, that's over 40%. That's nearly half of the skills that people like you and I are using every single day in the workplace. Um, Nearly half of that is going to have to change in the next four to five years alone. Now, what that means is we need very rapid reskilling and upskilling possibilities. A lot of workers can be self-motivated and will do that. But in many cases, it's employers themselves that are going to need to provide that reskilling and upskilling. And in yet other cases, it's going to be governments that are need to going to need to provide a lot more support. But there's another angle to this, which is employers simply have to think very differently about skills. Instead of relying on very traditional signals of what indicates a skill in a person, is it really where they got their degree from, what type of degree they had, or which workplace they worked in 10 years ago, or is it actually what they're able to demonstrate in the workplace? And so if employers take a more skills-first approach when it comes to hiring, retention, promotions, 
they'll actually be able to assess people on the basis of what they really know and what they're able to do. They're also able to then target much more specifically their reskilling and upskilling programs. And then the other big win out of this is that if you pull the skills first agenda forward um, and move a little bit away from um, university credentials and other more traditional signals, many more people have an opportunity because it doesn't mean that we're limited to the pool of people that have been to a specific type of degree or accreditation. And there's no evidence that people that haven't been to university aren't able to reskill or upskill towards very specific areas that companies need more talent in. So it solves a lot of problems at the same time, provides upward social mobility, helps companies find the right talent, and allows governments to focus much more on broad-based prosperity rather than more limited um, support for specific parts of the workforce. World Economic Forum Managing Director Sadia Zahidi. Skills Future Singapore is a government agency that seeks to promote upskilling and lifelong learning. I spoke to its chief executive, Tan Kok Yam, and asked him what he understood by the phrase skills first. Yeah, I think when we look at the term skills first, I think we can take it maybe at three different levels or three different aspects. I think at the the broadest level, the economy level, uh, we are looking at an economy, a labour market that is uh, effective in organising itself to acquire the skills, to be able to deal with uh, constraints, overcome the challenges of growth and to seize uh, opportunities. So for example, you look at something like the green green transitioning, uh, something that affects all economies, all societies uh, everywhere. How then is a skills first economy able to organize itself, to equip its workforce with the requisite skills to deal with everything from uh, vehicle electrification, to better ESG reporting, uh, to use of hydrogen as a fuel. So that's at the economy level. Now at the employer level, I think Skills First is about an employer and enterprise being able to associate or link uh, its, um, its business objectives, its growth strategies with capabilities and with the skills bank that it needs to acquire and build up. So then with that uh, sensibility, then how then can a skills first enterprise then either by hiring the appropriate workers from, from the market or by increasing the skill stock of its existing employees be then able to meet those growth challenges or those capabilities. We've always needed certain skills through history and so employers would always be looking for those skills. What, what do you think has changed now that we think maybe there's a mindset change needed for employers and employees that skills are the thing that need to be front of mind? What has changed? What's different now from, let's say, even 10 years ago? I think the cadence of uh, technological change is much faster now. And if you look at uh, that, I, I think you're all familiar with the report that talks about um, the half-life or the shelf-life of skills going to five years. The last few months have been the whole world talking about chat GBT and prompt engineering. Who knows what will come up next? So it's not so much uh, whether prompt engineering or chat GBT will change the way we work. It's the fact that there is so much change in sort of technology, in sort of business models and so on, that, that there is a need for enterprises, for individual workers, and for economy and society as a, as a whole to continuously think about how then do I acquire new skills to be relevant, to overcome challenges, 
to continue to seize opportunities for growth together. It's a really interesting term you've used there, the half-life of skills. It's quite scary that you can skill up, but those skills will have a duration and longevity just so much. And we, we, we don't know what it is because what will be that next technology already with ChatGPT? It can do some of the things I do, maybe some of the things you do. Um, anyway, I'd like to talk about so how, how Singapore positioned itself on this. Could you tell us what is skills future Singapore that you've led, I believe? At one level, uh, skills future Singapore is an agency under the public sector. And we look at uh, the fiscal investment that the government has put into uh, what we call continual education, upskilling for adults and so on. And we use that resource to create capacity uh, to improve the quality of adult education or continual education. So that's at one level. It may not be the most important thing, but it is important enough as a starting point that the government, the state, provides the fiscal support to enable capacity for learning beyond our formal education. The state has put in incentives for the market to provide that education, that upskilling for adults, people who have left formal education. That's right, subsidies. So we have both uh, what we call the supply side uh, subsidies, where we fund uh, training providers, including universities, polytechnics, directly. Uh, we also have something called the skills which are credit, which is a demand side sort of lever uh, given to the individual uh, so that he can choose the, how to use the credit for his, uh, his, his learning. And that comes to actually my second point, which is that beyond a fiscal investment, skills future also need to be a societal movement, if you like, uh, where individuals are seized uh, with the idea of continuously uh, improving their own skills capital, of looking ahead and, and saying, okay, where, where can I build myself up uh, so as to be ready to either transit to a new, new sector or to deepen uh, and be more versatile in my own sector. Uh, companies too, enterprises too, uh, need to be in the game, first of all, to be able to recognize uh, skills and also then to encourage and to enable their workers to be able to have opportunities in the workplace and beyond. If I came to Singapore and met some individuals or talked to some businesses that had used this skills-first approach, could you give me some examples of the type of people I might meet or the type of companies? Let me just use some examples uh, during the, the, the pandemic uh, period. So you would have someone who might come from a sector who was uh, a, a, a bit under stress during the pandemic period, maybe food and beverages, uh, F&B sector. Uh, and um, he would have uh, maybe taken part in a career transition program. There's a six to nine month program where he learns the necessary skill sets to be able to transit to a different sector. There'll be one example of someone that have uh, benefited or have uh, taken part in, in a sort of upskilling initiative. Of course, on the other end, you would have people who uh, participate in shorter courses, three days, five day courses, green reporting, um, how to measure your carbon footprint and so on. And maybe the boss will send someone to say, well, no, maybe you should learn about that. So because because I, I need to export my goods all over the world and I need to be able to report this properly. So it's a capability that the, the, the enterprise needs. Maybe just at a three to five day kind of kind of uh, debt, a bit more bite-sized uh, sort of upskilling. So so different, different depth of experience. So Singapore, you've been doing this for a number of years. What are the learnings that you could give to other governments, to companies, to individuals? 
to reorient themselves towards skills first? I think the one of the most uh, uh, important element of doing this well is that employers, enterprises absolutely uh, need to be involved. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it is not about uh, attending courses and, and being able to you know, uh, distribute certificates and so on. Uh, those, those are currency that will have no meaning and no value if it is not recognized in the job market uh, by employers. And the way then to involve employers uh, is to give them some skin in the game, push some of the leading, what we call industry captains, and ask them if they are willing to lean forward to look after their sector or players in their value chain, look at natural uh, aggregators such as trade associations, for example, and see whether they are able to uh, bring in the SMEs uh, to aggregate their skills needs and so on. So different ways to engage, but I think the more important point is that uh, employers absolutely need to be involved in the whole process of um, developing uh, the, the sort of the content for, for upskilling, the content for, for worker adult education. And this is being discussed in this, in this paper from the World Economic Forum and at the, at the Growth Summit. I'm wondering how fundamental do you think skills are and the skills first approach is for growth, for economic growth and the development of an economy and a country? Absolutely important. And, and there are two reasons. The first, this cadence, this rate of change. Look at the green transition. We look at uh, rapid digitalization. And may I add a third one, which is the aging demography. I think requires different skill sets in the economy, in the workplace, uh, in society uh, to be able to handle that. So that's, that's one aspect. Uh, the second aspect, and in fact, uh, it is quite timely because Actually, my, my deputy prime minister just mentioned that uh, in parliament less than, less than 24, uh, uh, less than 24 hours ago. And let me just look at the quote so I get it right. And he said, you know, we should strive to be a meritocracy where everyone can be the best possible version of themselves. And this striving has to go beyond formal education. Uh, this sense that you can still progress. And you are still able to go for opportunities, can upskill yourself, and you are not limited by what you graduate with or graduate without. That has to be part and parcel of an inclusive workforce and inclusive uh, uh, society. So if you ask how important this is, I would say it's fundamental. Tan Kok Yam, Chief Executive of Skills First Singapore. Another organisation putting skills first is Girls Who Code, which, as its name suggests, helps girls acquire the skills needed for computer coding. My colleague Juliette Masiga spoke to its chief executive. My name is Dr. Tarika Barrett, and I'm so proud to be the CEO of Girls Who Code. We're an international nonprofit organisation working to close a gender gap in new entry-level tech roles by 2030. And, you know, we're leading the movement to inspire, educate, and equip students who identify as girls or non-binary with the computing skills needed to pursue 21st century opportunities. You know, since launching in 2012, it's actually been more than 10 years, we've reached over 500,000 students with our programming, 115,000 of whom are college and, you know, workforce age alums. And for us, by addressing this growing gender gap in tech, we're empowering our young people to seek out the thriving and exciting careers of the future, the ones that are going to afford them the upward mobility and improved quality of life that come with a career in tech. And, you know, at Girls Who Code, we know how important it is to meet our students at every phase of their computer science journey. 
so that we can support them through the tech pipeline successfully. And, you know, we offer clubs for students as early as third through fifth grade and sixth through 12th grade. And our clubs are free and they allow students to join this beautiful sisterhood of supportive peers and role models where they not only learn computer science through a flexible curriculum, but they get a chance to really connect with each other. And these clubs take place after school on weekends during the summer. And they can be held completely in person or online. And, you know, for high school students who want to do more and who are interested in spending their summers with us, we offer what we call a summer immersion program. And it's a two-week intensive, and it's open to students from grades 9 to 11, as well as 12th grade alums of ours. And if you can picture this, these are live virtual classrooms, and they get a chance to hear from industry-leading professionals at top companies, and they get access to leaders in computer science, and they have mentorship opportunities, along with the essentials of CS. And then it doesn't stop there. (laughs) I know that I've been sharing a lot about our programming, but we have more. We also support college and career-age students, and we do that through a host of different things, including hosting hiring summits where thousands of students can learn about internships and job opportunities in the technical workforce and where we also get these hiring managers from our top companies to connect with a diverse slate of candidates for internships and jobs, often students who they wouldn't typically consider. And, you know, students themselves get to hear directly from these hiring managers and recruiters and they get a chance to meet, um, you know, so many employers that they wouldn't necessarily look at themselves. And these are often quick chats and dozens of our partners participate and recruit from these events. And we've had this wonderful track record of success. And, you know, the last thing I'll tell you about, and we have more programs than this, is that we launched a leadership academy, which is a four-month pilot program in 2022 with one of our top partners. 90% of our leadership academy students come from historically underrepresented groups. And they do so much together in small groups. They meet with career advisors who help them explore their path forward in the tech industry. They attend hiring fairs, speed networking events. Um, they meet other technologists. They even participate in a technical interview prep boot camp and they get a chance to be a part of webinars where they explore so many different topics. All of this I share with you is that we are so deeply committed to making sure that we give our students credible insight into the tech industry and that we give them real world applications, you know, in terms of their skills. And there's no better way to do that than to offer them access to tech companies so they can see for themselves how they work. So anyone listening to this interested in learning more about Girls Who Code or want to join our community, they can go to girlswhocode.com and you can find information on all these incredible ways to get involved, whether you're a student, a teacher, you can start a club or a college loop or just join us for our 2023 summer programs. So let me pause (laughs) because I shared so much with you, but at least you have a sense of our program. Given that it's it's highly online-based or has aspects of um, digital learning, um, are there any plans to take it around the world, um, reach girls outside of the U.S.? So that question is a tough one because before the pandemic, Girls Who Code, I mentioned, is an international program. And just so you know, we were really, really expanding at a pace that we were so proud of and that we were so excited about. We had um, clubs, I think over 700 clubs in the UK, Canada, and India as a start. But what was really challenging, and I know this is true for so many um, organizations that are domestic, is the pandemic really curtailed our efforts. Because as you might imagine, 
bringing our free after-school clubs model to those spaces across the world, we saw that in the U.S. we couldn't move forward because everything shut down. And so we had to rethink a lot of our international programming. We're still committed to this, and we think we've come up with a solution for now that still meets our goal of making sure that girls around the world fall in love with computer science. And right now, I mentioned our summer immersion program, but what I didn't share with you is that it's open to our international students as well. So if international students are interested in doing that two-week intensive, they can go to girlswhocode.com and learn more about it. We have students from so many countries. All we ask is that they have Wi-Fi to be able to participate and that they are comfortable with English because that is how it's being taught at this time. Um, We have in the past have had some of our materials translated, but we want to be completely transparent and say that this is ongoing work because so much was upended because of the health crisis. So at the forum, we're working on um, a skills first report and we're doing a lot of work around uh, upskilling, reskilling and uh, centering skill um, in addition to education and uh, experience. So um, what does a skills-first approach mean to you coming from the Girls Who Code space and all the work that you're doing? You know, so many of our girls go on to do incredible things within the tech industry, and it's beyond exciting. And I want to be transparent and say that our students come from very different backgrounds. Some graduated from two-year or four-year schools. Some dropped out of college once they got their first internship. And some graduated from the Ivy League. But what matters to us most at Girls Who Code is that they all have equal access to opportunities to break into the tech industry. So for us, equipping our students with the skills while encouraging them to integrate them with their passions has proved to be very successful as an approach for us as an organization. And at Girls Who Could, we know that there are many rewarding paths to a tech career. And our girls are prime examples of just how diverse that can be within the industry. I'll share a couple. So we have one Girls Who Code alum, Karina Popovich. Um, she founded Makers for COVID-19, an initiative to 3D print personal protective equipment or PPE materials for medical professionals on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. And we know that STEM can offer pathways to creativity. Most recently, four of our Girls Who Code alums created an augmented reality Instagram filter to honor the legacy and artistry of Chadwick Boseman in partnership with Meta and the Chadwick Boseman Foundation ahead of the premiere of Wakanda Forever. And, you know, we have another one of our alums, um, Devika Chipokati, who opted to pursue a degree in computer science while minoring in art after she realized she's passionate about art as well. And she's currently working at Disney for Marvel's art division. So while we give all these students, these girls and non-binary students, the skills they need to successfully like take on these technical challenge, it challenges. It's also about them understanding how those skills work with the things they're already excited about in their own lives. And there are many pathways into STEM and whether students want to work in the medical field or for a tech company or creative team, there's space for them to pursue these avenues that excite them, knowing that they're doing this work that makes it worthwhile for them and leaning on those skills that they gained. So we think about this mashup of skills and passion because that's so important for our community. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was about to ask you, can you give me some concrete examples? Because our our girls need them, right? When sometimes you're talking about these abstract things with the community and they're trying to understand, what are you talking about? What does this look like for me? 
when I'm interested in this or that. And so I offer those young women and their stories because those are often the kinds of things that excite our young people. And they sometimes don't see themselves reflected in an industry that can often be very white and male as presented to them. And that's why at Girls Who Code, we're constantly changing a culture that tells them that they don't have a seat at the table. And it's interesting to see that intersection between STEM and the arts, like tech skills at, at, at uh, Disney with the Chadwick Boseman project. So it's not in isolation, it's very holistic, um, which is exciting. Yes. So why do you think it's so important right now? Um, why do you think the skills approach is gaining currency much more than it had 10, 20 years ago? What's changed? Yeah, that's an excellent question about why now and, you know, why this moment to focus on a skills-based approach. Tech, as we're experiencing it now, has an, you know, outsized influence on our lives. And that impact is continuing to grow. If you think about it, from voting rights to healthcare to safety and security to banking, nearly every aspect of our lives now has a connection to tech that we can't ignore. We cannot opt out of tech, (laughs) that we were way past that point. And so it's more important than ever that the people creating the tech we use on a daily basis reflect the diversity of our communities and the world we live in today. And I'm talking about not just more women, but also more black and brown people, more people from the LGBTQIA community. Diversity in tech is an urgent issue. And we need to treat it as such. You know, our communities are going to be safer, more secure, more able to reap the immense benefits of of quality tech if our young people have a seat at the table. And that's why we focus on a skills-first approach at Girls Who Code. More than half of the students we serve come from historically underrepresented groups. These are young women, you know, who look like me, who grew up like I did potentially. I was, you know... um, Frankly, my grandmother actually um, worked on the family farm and had to drop out of school to help take care of her siblings. My mom was the first in our family to get a graduate degree. And, you know, these are young women who are motivated and ready to learn, but don't often have the same resources or opportunities as their peers. Their circumstances might cause them to work multiple jobs while carrying a full college course load. They might be balancing homework with caregiving responsibilities. Often, you know, not having access to the resources they need to succeed. These are young people who are the embodiment of bravery and resilience, the very qualities that we know these companies are desperate to have reflected in their workforce, but don't always show up in conventional academic credentials that tech firms overwhelmingly rely on. And from many, you know, prospective students, this is discouraging. Computer science is one of the fastest growing professions in our country. It's expected to grow 11% by 2029, which will translate into a half a million new jobs in our economy. And as we think about this, we know that we cannot afford to leave an ounce of tech talent on the table. And, you know, one tangible and feasible change that all companies can make is to stop relying on this elitist system of academic credentialing and hiring, which often offers a very narrow and privileged perspective around success. And it shuts out historically marginalized students. And so we wonder why we fail to bring much needed diversity to these these tech companies. And, you know, a focus on four-year university education 
typically from Ivy League institutions, it keeps hurting our young people and our companies overall. And many of our students don't have the opportunity to study full time, which is why they find themselves gravitating toward the flexibility that non-traditional options like boot camps and certifications offer. Then we are ensuring that they won't be penalized for how they've acquired their skills, which is such an important point for the industry to pay attention to. I can relate to the diversity aspect of what you're saying, being African and a woman. Um, I understand how we need support to gain access to these spaces. So that's really, really exciting to hear. I see previously you've worked in the mentorship space. What are some of the interesting intersections between mentorship and the skills first approach? How do they, sounds like a happy coincidence, those two things to come together. <laughs> That's such a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. I think that when I think about a skills first approach and mentorship, I think what's really beautiful about mentorship relationships often is that you hear directly from people and their own personal journeys. And when you think about it, especially when you look at women and people of color in tech, very often they were either discouraged very early in their um, CS journeys, you know, in terms of pursuing the field, or they didn't end up starting in tech. Very often the stories are ones of resilience where they may have taken computer science in undergrad, but they didn't see people who look like them. So they didn't take the next level up or they started at a, as a, at a company doing one thing, but their interest was peaked and they sought out other, you know, champions and mentors and they pivoted and then sought out a, a tech career. I mention this because mentorship often allows for the unveiling of stories and journeys in a way that can be deeply transformative for our young people. They hear directly from people who look like them um, and who have journeys that they hope to emulate. And that can often lead to inspiration and having them realize that it doesn't have to be linear, that you don't have to have checked every box to have a seat at the table within the tech industry, that you can come to it later. You can um, explore it in different ways. You can go through tradi traditional pathways like a college degree in computer science or related field, or you can come to it as some people do through these alternative opportunities. So I do think the happy intersection is one where hopefully more and more stories get surfaced about people who are diverse within the industry and that young people get a chance to understand those journeys and pathways into tech. Awesome. Um, I'm just thinking that you support these girls a lot on their journey into the corporate world. Once they get the job, um, is there support then like to um, yeah. career adv advice and mentorship in the workplace so they can also have access to better jobs and promotions and career development? Such a powerful question that you're asking about what supports exist for young people, because that's a serious issue, because here we are, right? We've reached over 500,000 students with our programming. What happens next? How do we cement these pathways into tech? And we know that, you know, Girls of Code did a study with Accenture that found that, you know, 50% of women leave the industry by the age of 35 because they didn't find it to be hospitable to women. And so when I think about what that looks like, it's really important to speak to the industry directly about what needs to happen. And, you know, when I think about that, we have to prioritize initiatives that educate students about the many pathways for them to access companies looking to hire and connect them with mentors. We, Girls Who Code, have a number of strong partnerships with tech companies, as well as with the government, and especially through the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. And it's important for us as an organization 
to collaborate with those who are building the next generation of the tech workforce. And our partnerships not only cement our commitment to supporting our network of college-age alums, but they help ensure that students maintain career momentum and continue to build their networks, which we know is so important for a young person. And, you know, one of the things that happened a few years ago during the pandemic, we surveyed our community and we learned right away that 30% of our alums had internships or jobs rescinded and 40% of our seniors were still looking for full-time employment because of the health crisis. And we launched a number of different initiatives, but one of the ones we launched was called Work Prep, which is a two-week virtual pre-internship program designed to introduce college-age women to career pathways in tech by immersing them in a partner company and providing project-based experiences to develop career readiness and technical skills. And by all accounts, this, these pilots were immensely successful. Over half the participants said that they were more likely to continue to pursue their technical degrees and would go on to pursue a career in tech as a result of the program. And, you know, this is the kind of program that was also designed with an eye to the challenges that our young people from underrepresented groups were facing, especially our women of color. And they were the ones that had the biggest gains from these companies. I mean, in terms of um, these skills and their interests and companies that support these types of efforts provide that critical early exposure and opportunities that get these young people prepared for the workforce. But the other thing, because you asked about, you know, what needs to happen within these companies, I want to start with the first thing that happens in terms of the search. Employers need to broaden the scope of where they look for strong candidates. Not everyone needs a computer science degree to cultivate the necessary skills to be successful in tech. We have fellow nonprofits like Empower providing working adults the opportunity to pursue tech certification and providing free access to tech education and skills. We need more of that. And additionally, we know that top universities get all the attention from the recruiters. But what about our community colleges and our state schools? I myself went to, you know, a city university of New York school, Brooklyn College, alongside so many other students from working class backgrounds. And, you know, that's why we're focusing so much on workforce development initiatives that give our students direct access to top companies. You know, for example, since the pandemic started, we hosted four all virtual hiring summits that featured thousands of young professionals, half of them, as I mentioned, from historically underrepresented groups. And we connected them with dozens of companies that were open to the unique qualities our students embody. And, you know, these are students who some of them were entering their third year of school in a pandemic juggling work and school and caregiving and the workforce feels so uncertain. So we have to think about how to support them. And not only, you know, is it about supporting them, it's about making sure that the workplace is inclusive. And that means that at Girls Who Code, we try to encourage these companies once they try to think about their hiring practices to look at what they're doing that might be alienating young people and especially people of color and young women in terms of staying at the company. And, you know, very often it can be daunting, right? There's no magical blueprint for this type of process, but we hope that companies pause and reflect, you know, on their work culture, thinking, you know, not only about at the beginning of the stage, what is an appealing hiring candidate, but they also have to assess their promotion practices. What's keeping women and people of color out out of these key leadership positions. And while we know this kind of self-reflection is difficult, 
It's going to be the difference between an all-white male office and an office that more accurately reflects the world we're living in today. And any efforts to tackle systemic racism and sexism, the root cause of the lack of diversity in tech, will be met with resistance. But we have to persist because we have so much to gain from a diverse tech industry. And, you know, this we have to move beyond treating hiring and promotion as, you know, a challenge to fill diversity quotas. We need to fold in the systems of support that your question really gets at. We know how critical it is for young people to feel supported in their first job and how they frame their perspective on their careers for years to come based on that experience. And the last thing we want is for them to become so jaded with the industry that they simply opt out. You know, give you one last example. We had our first hiring summit during the pandemic, and we had one of our companies hire 17 young women from that event, but they didn't stop there. They didn't just hire them. They created an internal community of support, a program for them with a focus on retention. They made sure that these girls who code alums, they would find the sisterhood, the community that led them to pursue tech and that they would stay engaged. That same company to date has hired more than 100 Girls Who Code alums because of this deep commitment. And we're so proud of this effort. And that's the kind of forward thinking we want to see from, from our companies, not just embracing a skills-based approach, but thinking about diversity and support in a completely different way. Every company is different, but offering this mentorship and community are great places to start. As you speak, I'm getting a great sense of the impact of your work. It's very impactful. Do you think there's room for governments um, to come in and partner with the private sector for, for girls who are uh, have skills-based credentials, who've gone to a boot camp, who have like an online certification? Is there space for collaboration, stronger collaboration with like state, um, the state, state governments or national governments to support this movement? I absolutely think there's tremendous room for collaboration with this, because if you think about it, our young people don't even begin to understand what opportunities exist in government. Very often they'll know because these are big name companies sometimes with that they associate with tech. But I'll offer you the example of our partnership with CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. I had the good fortune of being invited to go to the White House um, when I just became CEO of Girls Who Code for a summit on cybersecurity. And from that experience, we got a chance to connect with CISA and begin to think about what a collaboration would look like, both in the way of thinking about concrete um, educational opportunities for our young people, but also what it would mean to change the face of who is in cybersecurity. Because often for our young people, this is a pathway that they have never heard of or know nothing about. And so it resulted in such a strong partnership and a set of outcomes that we're so proud of. We ended up developing curriculum based on cybersecurity, including challenges for our clubs to do together, where they learned about cybersecurity threats and what they could do as stronger cyber citizens. Um, but we also started to highlight incredible women in cyber, women of color, so that our young people could actually see themselves reflected within this industry. That and that partnership continues. And we all of a sudden have all these young people asking about the 700,000 empty cyber jobs that, we're, that have to be filled. And we know that we are concretely contributing to making sure that we have some of the diversity we need getting into that pathway. That's just one example of the way that government can partner with nonprofits 
and subsequently also I think with you know corporations to begin to think about how we can work on something as critical as cyber but even more we know that artificial intelligence and machine learning are also things that are rapidly evolving where we need that sort of intersection of government and nonprofit and the business community to be able to create the kind of pathways for young people that we need to see. Brilliant. As we wrap up, if you look ahead 10, 20 years from now, with all the work that you're doing now, how do you think this will change the face of business? What are the positives that we can expect from from this groundswell? I mean, as we look ahead, you know, I dream of, um, frankly, a computer science, a tech industry that's reflective of our communities. Right now, women make up only 26% of all computing jobs in the U.S. And for Black and Latinx women, it's only 5%. My hope is that that radically changes and that we get to gender parity in the tech industry because it's so important. And the truth of the matter is that our health, our safety, our lives depend on diversity. If you point to just basic examples, for example, of artificial intelligence and facial recognition software not correctly identifying the faces of black and brown people and the impact that that can have on safety and security. I know you may be familiar with the story of a black man who was wrongfully incarcerated in New Jersey because he was incorrectly identified by facial recognition software and he spent 10 days in jail. We also know examples of health apps that are launched that feature no functionality about menstruation and fertility. How can you launch a health app that does not meet the needs of half of your consumers? We are inundated with examples every day of technology that fails to meet the needs of our communities. And so my hope is that looking ahead, if we're positive and optimistic, that these are young people of color, our non-binary students, our girls and young women, they are the ones who are going to offer our world so many critical solutions to the problems and challenges we face today. And so I'm optimistic that as we continue to create pathways for them into industry, we'll begin to see these things change for the better. Tarika Barrett, CEO of Girls Who Code, was speaking to Juliet Masiga. You can find the report, Putting Skills First, Creating Access to Opportunity for All, on our website, weform.org, where you can also catch up on the action from the Growth Summit. And if you missed our other two episodes this week from the summit, the one on jobs, the other one on the global economy, you can find them at wef.ch slash podcasts or on whatever app you use to hear your podcast. Just search for Radio Davos. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with reporting by Gail Markovitz and Juliet Masiga. Editing was by Taz Kelleher. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.